King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. Excuse me, Herodias had a grudge, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, and they brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. That is a terrible birthday party. Like, you know, I, I get awkward at parties, but I don't know I, what I would do in that situation. And uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a strange passage in Mark's gospel, right? I mean, we've been following Jesus and his ministry, and then we cut away to this scene, and Jesus isn't in it. It's not a teaching. It's not a miracle. It's not a parable. It's a flashback, which is kind of unusual. And when the scene is concluded, the people in this story, they won't reappear in the Gospel of Mark. We actually skipped this a couple of weeks ago, and you might not have noticed. Right before this, Jesus sends the disciples out on their two-by-two mission, and right after this, they come back. So, why is this here? You know, many of us, uh, me at least, but I think many of us have a tendency to read our Bibles like it's a reference book, like it's a textbook or an encyclopedia or maybe a newspaper, that what it mostly has is facts for us to know. You know, if I want to know what happened in a certain place at a certain time, I can 
find a newspaper, and if I want to know about algebra, there's a textbook for that. And if I want to know what happened to John the Baptist, I can open Mark, chapter 6, starting at verse 16. I think many of you probably know this, but the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, they came later, much later. They weren't in the original text. And for those, we can thank Stephen Langdon, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in 1220 or so. And those numbers, they make things easier to find. We use them all the time. It's very convenient, and that's a good thing. But I think they subtly reinforce the idea that the Bible is a collection of facts, a reference book, because we've indexed it. We've made it easy to find what we're looking for. This is Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's part of the reading plan for the elder training program here. And uh, it is a textbook. Systematic theologies, and there are many, this is just one, seek to arrange the content of Scripture like a textbook. They have chapters like creation and sin and atonement and baptism and worship. And if you have a question, you find the topic in the index and you find the page number and then everything you ever wanted to know about angels or church government. It's very useful. But the 1,200 plus page textbook organizations of the Bible even exist tells us something. It means the Bible isn't a textbook. I mean, otherwise, why would anyone spend, I'm guessing, years making these things? The Bible is mostly narrative. Stories with characters, settings, plots, conflicts, themes, all the things great stories have more than just facts, denser with meaning than a textbook can be. Around a third of the Bible is poetry. Duane read some of it to us earlier. And what is a poem than words loaded with more meaning than they can otherwise bear? Now, I want to head off a potentially distracting thought. When I say the Bible is made of stories, I'm not talking about the factualness of the things it depicts. I'm talking about how they're depicted. Not the cold drone of an encyclopedia, but the rich symphony of narrative literature. When you read a novel or a poem, you have an expectation that you don't have when you're looking something up an encyclopedia. You understand that the author wants to do something to you, wants to make you feel something, take you on a journey, maybe change something in you. You understand that the details, the words chosen, the characters that appear and reappear, the similarities, the repetition, they matter. They were all choices made to take you somewhere. Something that helps me to read the Bible like this 
is to pretend I haven't read it before. I grew up in the church, and a lot of these stories are very familiar to me. But if I can put myself in the place of someone who doesn't know what's coming next, it helps me to think about what am I feeling right now in this part of the book. So let's try that with our passage. You know, the Gospel of Mark works a little bit like a reverse mystery story. We're given the big reveal right at the front. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the very first sentence. We know these things, and Jesus knows these things, but the people in the story don't, and they don't for a long time. It's not until chapter 8, thanks Steve, that someone refers to Jesus as the Christ, and not until chapter 15 that a human calls him the Son of God, things we've known from the beginning. We get to watch Jesus' ministry unfold in the lives of all these people as they slowly realize what's happening right in front of them. And in the early chapters of Mark, we're excited. We learn more and more about Jesus, what he's like, what he cares about. We see lives changed, people healed. Jesus describes the kingdom of God like a growing seed, slowly but surely taking root and spreading. And we see this happening in the story. We're encouraged. We're hopeful. In chapter 6, we get what feels like a setback. Jesus is rejected in his hometown. It says he wasn't able to do a miracle there except to heal a few sick people. But immediately after, he sends out his disciples and they heal more people than ever. It's working. It feels unstoppable. The mustard seed is growing. Growing so much that it gets the attention of Herod. Now, before we continue, I want to upload some cultural context about Herod that we know from ancient historians that people reading this would have known. The Herod in this story is not the same Herod that's in the Christmas stories. That's the three wise men Herod, the one who was threatened by a baby, so he killed all the babies. That was Herod the Great, pretty sure he called himself that, who rose to power largely because he, his father, was pals with Julius Caesar, and he stayed in power by staying in the good graces of Rome. Herod the Great loved power, and he'd do anything to cling to it. Herod had his two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, executed for threatening his power. Another pair of his sons conspired to assassinate him because they loved power too. One of them was also executed, and the other written out of Herod's will. You see, Herod, being paranoid that his children would have too much to gain by murdering him, perhaps justifiably, split up his kingdom into four parts. Between his three remaining sons and his sister. And these parts would not be hereditary any longer, but ruled by tetrarchs. And when they died, their lands would be annexed by Rome. And one of those tetrarchs, the tetrarch of Galilee, was Herod Antipas, 
the Herod in this story. Antipas leaves his wife and marries Herodias, his brother's wife. This was unpopular with the Jewish Senate, but Antipas was in the good graces of the current Roman emperor, Tiberius, and the Senate was pressured to let it slide. But John the Baptist wouldn't let it slide. And for his protests, he was arrested. So the thing to understand about Herod Antipas and all the Herodians is that they will go to great lengths and spill their own blood to cling to their power and their privilege. So Herod Antipas, heir to a paranoid throne, hears of the disciples and their healings and that Jesus is their leader. And some people think that John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. And this should be a record scratch, say what moment, because the last we knew of John, he'd been arrested, but he wasn't dead. What happened? We're confused. We're feeling uneasy. Things seem so good. The disciples were spreading the kingdom. So Herod's advisors are speculating, maybe it's John, maybe it's Elijah, come back again, maybe he's a prophet. Herod hears these theories, but there's only one he can think about. He knows who Jesus is. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. And you can feel that he's haunted by this. But we're still confused. What happened? Mark gives us a flashback. John has spoken out against the marriage of Antipas and Herodias, and this does not sit well with Herodias. John is in prison, but she wants him dead. Why? What's going on in her heart? Herodias was the daughter of one of those executed sons of Herod the Great, and she was the wife of the one written out of Herod's will. But now she's married to Antipas. She has power and wealth, and she secured those things, and John threatens them, says her access to them is unjust, stolen, and she's not going to let something like marriage laws and a camel hair covered prophet pry those things from her grasp. She clings to power so tightly that it's not enough for John to be in prison. He has to be dead. But she has a problem. She can't order his execution. And Antipas, who can, for reasons that I'm sure Herodias doesn't understand, kind of likes John. It says Antipas feared John, knew he was righteous, and kept him safe. Herod liked to talk to John, although he found him perplexing. I think it was because John was describing a type of kingdom, a type of living that Herod just couldn't imagine. So Herodias finds her opportunity. Antipas is having a birthday party and important people from the province will be there. Herodias sends in her daughter to dance which pleased the Tetrarch and his guests, and Antipas does a rash and foolish thing. 
swears to the girl to give her whatever she wishes. I have to imagine some alcohol was involved in that. The girl goes to her mother, and Herodias' trap is set. She requests John's head on a platter. And when this request is made, we're told that Antipas was exceedingly sorry. The word in Greek is perilupos, deeply grieved. And it's used in only two other places in the Gospels. And each time, it's someone facing a choice. It's how the rich young man felt when he was told he had to release his grasp on his wealth to follow Jesus. And it's how Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed for any other way beside the cross, but ultimately said, your will be done. Antipas is shaken to his core, and he realizes the trouble he's in. If he grants this request, John will die, and he knows he's innocent. But if he refuses, he'll be shamed in front of his powerful friends, and his power will begin to slip away. He has to choose, cling to power and shed innocent blood, or let go and save John. Paralupos. And we see the choice he makes. John dies. John was the vanguard of Jesus' ministry, and now he's dead. We're reading this book, and this is the low point. Jesus sending out the disciples seemed like the first shoots of the new kingdom. But now it seems so fragile. If John's not safe, who is? Jesus is alone, the disciples scattered. What's going on? This reminds me of another story. A different king faced with a sexual scandal who killed someone he knew was innocent to make it go away. King David was on his balcony and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop and she was beautiful and he took her. Her name was Bathsheba and she became pregnant which was a problem for David, and he tried to cover it up by sending Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, home. He was a soldier. But Uriah was too loyal to David and his soldiers to leave them. So David sent Uriah to the front with a sealed letter for his commanding officer, and the letter instructed that Uriah be placed in the thickest part of the fighting. And so after unknowingly carrying his own execution orders to his executioner, he died. This is 2 Samuel, where this story takes place. And does anything seem familiar about it? David saw her, saw she was desirable, and took her. It's what Eve did. It's the same thing Eve did. Saw the fruit. 
saw that it was good, and took it. That's the pattern of sin. We have a faulty definition of good. We see good, and we seize it, take it, thinking it will lead to life, but it leads to death instead. And so we see in the story of John's death the terrible effect of sin still claiming lives even as the kingdom of God spreads. What's going to turn this around? Herod, Herodias, her daughter, John, these people won't reappear in Mark's gospel. But the shape of this story will. In chapter 14, Jesus is arrested. Arrested for shining a light on corrupt leaders, just like John. He has threatened his accuser's power, just like John. They want him dead, just like John, and they don't have the power to do it, just like John. The person who can order an execution isn't inclined to do so, just like John. And that person is put into a situation where they have to murder someone they know is innocent to keep their power, just like John. And so we read of Jesus' arrest and trial, and we're afraid. Afraid because we've seen this happen before, right here to John. The distorted sense of good, the clinging to power, is going to kill another innocent. And our fears are realized. Jesus is put to a gruesome death, like John. And his disciples lay him in a tomb, like John. And if you're reading this book, it's the lowest point. Perhaps you think Jesus' story will end just like John's. But good news. This story has a twist. Jesus is not like John. When Jesus is faced with the test in the garden, when he is plunged into paralupos, he makes the choice no one has ever made. He lays it all down to save our lives. The death our sin unleashes cannot hold him. He rises, sets death aside, and sits on his throne as the king of all things. This may seem obvious to most of you, but it's worth saying. Jesus rose from the dead. That is the critical detail. Unlike all other prophets and revolutionaries and activists and anyone else who's ever sought to change the world, Jesus rose from the dead. Not dead anymore. Alive right now. That's what we have here. Like this place is not a self-help group. It's not a support program. It's not a philosophical society. We are a group of people living in the reality that we murdered someone and he came back to life. 
And we are helping each other decide how to live in light of that fact. You know, I see Herod as tragic. He was so close. He was intrigued by John. He liked to hear from him. But when it came down to it, he chose his own power over someone else's life. And you know what? I do that too. Yeah, I haven't asked for someone's head on a platter. But the first time Herod was faced with that choice, neither did he. It was probably something small, something I would do. I do. I choose my power, my convenience, my comfort, my time, my money, and I hurt people. And sometimes I cling to those things that I think are good for me, and it's Jesus that has to go. You know, the death of John and Jesus show us the dire nature of our situation. Truth to power gets you killed. And as long as there are humans running human kingdoms, humans with distorted views of good who are willing to sacrifice people for their own gain, there will never be real peace or real flourishing. We cannot protest or vote or legislate our way to the good we seek. The good news of Jesus is that a new kingdom is here inaugurated by his resurrection, one not ruled by sin-corrupted humans. And those of us who claim the name of Jesus are citizens of this kingdom, and our stories have a surprise ending as well. The trajectory of our lives is not the death our sin unleashes, but the unquenchable life of our king. Those are the facts. But does it feel like that? Any of the time? I still sin. I'm still so messy. I still hurt people. Does that mean I'm not part of the kingdom? You know, David eventually felt the weight of what he did to Bathsheba and Uriah, and he wrote a poem. We call it Psalm 51. And in the early verses, David is describing just how low his sin has taken him. And he says this in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. And the words are very important. Notice that it does not say, Give me some more time to clean up my heart. It's not, Help me have a clean heart. It's not, I'll clean up my heart if or when. You see, David understood that he didn't need help. He needed something entirely new. Create in me a clean heart. The word in Hebrew is bara. In the beginning, God barad the heavens and the earth. It's the same word. If you feel dead, if you feel dead in your sin, 
slain by the sin of others. It is not about more time or trying harder. God can create life where there is no life. It's the first page of the Bible, the first thing we learn about him. Life where there is no life. He can empty tombs and he can create clean hearts. And he can create something new in you. A lot of us see the life of following Jesus like this. If we can just hang on tightly enough to Jesus, he'll see us through. If we behave, if we do the thing we're supposed to or not do the thing we're not supposed to, whatever that is for you. But friends, that's not what it's like. Jesus has you. Jesus carries you. You belong to him. And Jesus is not careless with what's his. It's more like this. It's not about clinging to Jesus. It's about letting go of the things our sinned, darkened hearts think are good. That's what Herodias Herod, the rich young man, the Pharisees, and Pontius Pilate couldn't do. Let go. You know, I was preparing for this this week, and I had kind of a bad day. And it made me face something that I cling to tightly. I want to be special. I want to be recognized. I want to be chosen preferred by other people over other people. I think that will bring me life. Some things happened this week that made me feel not special, passed over, overlooked. And you know what? The thing I'm clinging to, it does not lead to life. It leads to paranoia and envy and rivalry and needing more and more and more and more of it for it to feel like life again. I don't know what you're clinging to, but what would happen if you let go? What would happen? Something we say quite a bit here is that the Christian life is a pattern of repentance and faith. Repentance is recognizing that like Eve and David and Herodias and Herod, our view of good is skewed. That there are things that we have seized that we have taken and that we cling to that will not lead us to life. Repentance is letting go of those things. And faith, faith is trusting that it's okay 
to let go. And that if God can put life in Jesus' dead body, he can put life in us as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for who you are. We thank you for your word that it invites us into your story and that you look on us and you want us to be a part of that story. Lord, there's so many things we cling to that we think will be life and they're not. And I pray that you show us those things and you make us confident to let them go and rest in you. You are good. We thank you for Jesus. That when he was faced with a test, he chose to obey. We thank you for our king and his kingdom. May we grow closer together and closer to you. In your son's mighty name we pray. Amen.